Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, then you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 11. We're taking a break today from 1 Timothy and Pastor Steve's series on We the Church. And we're going to be looking again at our series that we started back in April, for those of you who were there at the time. I preached back in April and we started a series called Remember and Beware. And we're working our way through 2 Peter and we looked at the greeting last time. We looked at verses 1 to 4 and we saw here that Peter is writing this, story, this, this, this letter to a group of believers, probably in Asia Minor somewhere, and he's writing this near the end of his life. He may have already been at this point in prison. And we ask the question, when Peter nears the end of his life, this, 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 this letter, what does he want to impart to the church? What is his message that he wants to impart to the church? And what he's doing is he's urging the church to remember the gospel and to beware of false teachers. And this can be a rather uncomfortable topic to talk about because we live in a culture where we don't like to make statements about absolute truth or pronounce judgment on some other idea or philosophy or theologies or people. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, I'm a product of my culture. We're all products of our culture. But this is something that we can't afford to ignore. Because, as Steve has been saying, right theology leads to right living, which leads to right relationships. The opposite is also true. Wrong theology leads to sinful living, and it leads to broken relationships. And so this series is titled Remember and Beware because we're called to, first of all, remember the gospel. Peter calls his listeners to remember the gospel and as the video what we just watched said, we never, 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 as only John Piper can put it, outlive our need for the gospel. We need to remember the gospel, but at the same time we need to beware. Because there are going to be those who come to try and lead us away from it. And so last time we looked at Second Peter, we looked at the beginning of the letter. And Peter in that part of the letter, in the first four verses, focuses specifically on calling his listeners to remember the gospel and he wants to, he calls them to three things so the first thing we looked at was remember that we have been given everything we need to live a godly life god has already given if we believe in christ if we trust in christ then we've already been given everything that we need to live a godly life second thing we looked at was remember that the power that equips us comes through the knowledge of jesus through knowing jesus and then finally, remember that by knowing Jesus, we're granted his promises, including eternity to spend with him. But as the video said, right away, right now, we're restored to relationship with God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. The, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the relationship between God and man was broken. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And so the question we asked was, do you know the gospel? Is it at the center of your life? Do you strive to remember it and, and to live it out? 
but what we're going to be looking at today then, because there's a follow-up question that sort of comes from this. How do we know this is the case? How can we be assured that we know the gospel? How can we be assured that we believe the gospel? How can we be assured that we're saved? And this is not really an uncommon question to hear. I think all of us who, who claim the name of Christ for ourselves and who have professed to have accepted the good news of the gospel that Christ came and he died for sinners and that through him we're restored to a right relationship with God, we've asked this question before. Or if not us, we've had family members or friends ask us this question. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know, how can I have assurance that I've saved? And then, what if we fail? What if we mess up? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect, as my wife will tell you. And, and, and we mess up all the time. We fail. So what do we do? How do we, how do we deal with that? Am I still a Christian? And this is a pertinent issue because next week we're going to be having a baptism service. And at that point, we have at least three people at this point who are going to be baptized. And just the other night, the elders, other elders and I met with a number of, of people who were desiring to be baptized and or accepted into membership. A and one of the reasons for meeting with these people was to ask the question, do you know Jesus? And are you trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins? And to make sure that they understand this. And in fact, this is probably the most important question that we can ask ourselves. But how can we be sure of the answer? And this is what our passage addresses today here. Because if we don't know what the gospel is, if we don't know that we actually believe it, and we don't know that it is trustworthy, when eventually the false teachers come along, as Peter talks about, then we're not going to be ready. And make mistake, no mistake, I don't want us to be a naive on this point because they will come. They will come. If they aren't already here, there soon will be people who come into the church and whisper lies into our ears. I mean, there was opposition to the gospel. There was nothing that Satan would love more than for us to tear each other apart with infighting and lies and to turn our hearts away from the gospel from the good news. So let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you haven't already. And we're going to be looking at 5 to 11 today. But I'm actually going to read right from the beginning of the letter so that we get the, the overall context, because it's been a few months since we actually looked at 1 to 4. And I want us to remember, too, this is written by Peter to a group of people. It's a letter. It's meant to be one coherent thought. We're not meant to kind of tear it apart into lots of little pieces. And for organizational purposes, we do this, but, but I want us to remember that this is a letter. It's one coherent thought. So I'm going to read us from the beginning, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go down to verse 11. So 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God our Savior and, Jesus, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and his excellence by which, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises 
so that through them we may become partakers of the design nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we look at this passage, I, I want us to remember something, and Steve said this a few weeks ago, but it's something I think that when we read the Bible that we really need to be cognizant of, that when I tell my son, Micah, to clean up the mess he made, I don't want him to reflect upon what I said. I want him to obey me. And in the same way, when God speaks to us through his word, he wants us to do something. So as we look at this passage, I want us to remember that this is a call to action. It's not something we're just meant to think about and reflect on. So here Peter says, because we already have everything that we need in Christ, we're first of all called to make every effort to live in light of the gospel. Notice how if we go back to verse 5, before he starts listing all the virtues, Peter says, for this very reason. What reason? Because we have already been given everything that we need to live in Christ, everything we need to live a godly life, because the power to live it comes through knowing Jesus and because knowing Jesus, who called us according to his glory and his excellence, grants us his promises, because of all these things, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For these reasons, make every, every effort to supplement your faith with all these virtues. And I don't want us to get here too hung up on the list, because oftentimes when we see a list, like it's really easy for us to kind of go through the list and say, well, I'll tick off the first thing, and then I'll work on the next one, and we'll tick our way down a list. Because often that's how we think of lists, right? You know, if I make a to-do list, usually I make it in order of, of what I want to do most important. So I'll start the first thing I'm going to do, and then I tick it off, and then I go to the next thing, and I tick it off. But this isn't the sort of list like that. Um, Paul, uh, sorry, rather Peter here is using what is a common literary structure of the time, much like how, you know, if we were to read a modern satire, so if someone wrote a satire uh, and, and, and someone a thousand years from now was to read this satire and they were to take it absolutely literally, they would be mi missing the point because, because the satire is actually reflecting on the opposite of what it means. And in the same way, if we don't kind of take into account 
We can sometimes focus on the, the, the order that these things come, come in instead of the, the idea that this literary structure that they had at the time was very common and it, it's more less prescriptive in the sense that we need to arrive at things in a particular order, rather, and it's not even an exhaustive list. Rather, we're meant to, we're meant to, we're meant to take this list and we're meant to, um, it's meant to culminate, rather, in, in, in something. So this list would start somewhere and it, it would provide a non-exhaustive list of the things, that of, 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 of character traits, and then it culminates in something. And in this particular case, it culminates in, in the word agape, love. And, and this is a self-sacrificing sort of love. This is the love that God has for us. It's love that doesn't expect anything in return. It's love that acts whether or not there's a response. So since we have the good news that we don't have to live up to the requirements of the law, and because Jesus has done it for us, because he's working in us, the power to, because the power to live a life pleasing to him is already in us, we should make every effort to live a life that reflects that we believe this. And this is not really a departure from, from the rest of scripture or from the rest of the letters in the New Testament. The idea that our belief requires a response and requires change in our life can be found all over the New Testament. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved. So this is like the ultimate grace book. Like Ephesians is all about how we have nothing to do with it. And yet P P Paul says here, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or we go to the book of James. What a good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. And if we think about this, this isn't a particularly strange idea. This isn't even really one of those biblical ideas that, you know, that don't really fit with our, our, our understanding. You know, one of the best indicators of people, of what people actually believe is, is what they do, how they act, what they value. I mean, there's a, there's a common saying, you know, if something looks like a duck and it talks like a duck and it walks like a duck, then, you know, it's probably a duck. S that's, that's the sort of thing we're getting at here, that, that, you know, if you really believe it, if you really believe something, then it's going to, come out in your actions. And in a sense here, what Peter is saying is almost unnecessary if we really get what he's saying in verses 1 to 4. If we really understand, if we really get a vision for who God is and what he's done for us and how he pursues us, if we really understand how blessed we are because of the gospel, then we're going we're gonna to respond. We're going to be changed. And it's not going to happen overnight. This is not something that, you know, I flick a switch and then tomorrow everything is wonderful. But what we will do is we will pursue him. 
and we're going to desire to please him. We need to make every effort to, to live in light of the gospel. And then number two, the second thing he really, he really Peter, Peter mentions here is that, you know, failing to live in light of the gospel. So it's almost the, the, the first one, point one, make every effort to live in light of the gospel is an affirmative point. Go do this. The second idea is that if we fail to live in light of the gospel, it calls into question our belief. It's the other side of the coin. If we look at verses eight and nine, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, <coughs> having forgotten what he is that he is cleansed from his former sins. And the word here that's, that's translated ineffective is literally idle. And this was a consistently negative term in Greek philosophical and moral psyche. In fact, it's the same word that James, in the book of James, uses when he says that faith without works is useless. It's the same word there. And unfruitful here, a biblical term which is used throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's used to describe a lack of virtue or works. And in an agricultural society, this like is a large, like this is not, we're in an urbanized society. Everyone lives in the city. We go to the grocery store. We get our food at the grocery store. The society here was, there wasn't, it wasn't an urban society. Yes, they had cities, but cities were much smaller. And most people were spread throughout the countryside. And a large percentage of the population would have been involved in agriculture. So th this would have been widely understood by them as a negative connotation. Because if you have a tree, let's say you plant a tree. You've got an orchard, an apple orchard, and you plant this tree. And the tree doesn't produce any apples. And, you know, you depend on selling apples to pay for your family, your, your, your food, to pay for your existence, to survive. Then what are you going to do? You're going to cut down the tree to make room to plant another tree because something's wrong with that tree. It's dead. Jesus himself uses this imagery. In, in John 15, starting in verse 5, he says, I am the vine. Notice that much like Peter says in verses 1 to 4, the fruit comes through knowing Jesus, but it's a necessary product of faith. And the other side of this is if we lack these qualities, we are so nearsighted, we're blind. Why? Because we've forgotten what the gospel is. We've forgotten what the gospel calls us to. We've forgotten that we stood up and declared that we were baptized that Christ is now the Lord of our lives, that we commit to turn to him and away from sin, we've forgotten all that. We have, in essence, forgotten the gospel. And blind is not a good thing. It's not a positive word in the New Testament. Jesus called the Pharisees blind. In 2 Corinthians, unbelievers are described as being blinded. In Revelation and probably one of the most damning uses of it, that God tells the church at Laodicea, 
For you say I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Being blind implies unbelief. And so if we're so nearsighted that we're blind, it calls into question salvation. So failing to live out the gospel calls into question our belief. And finally, point three. Living in light of the gospel confirms our calling. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, you, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we know Jesus, because he has given us the power to overcome, because we need to bear fruit, it's the necessary result of our faith. Be all the more diligent to live in light of the gospel. And thus confirm your calling and election, which is just a fancy way of saying, you belong to Christ. He wants to get a hold of you. And he starts to change your life. He's not giving up. He's not going to let you go. He's going to finish what he's doing. So make every effort to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, to become more like him, to chase after him, after the things of God. You see, we, we never, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. We don't move past it. We need it every day. We need to pursue lives that reflect that we have been changed. Not because we want to be better people or because we're somehow trying to get in with God, but because God has already changed us. And he's doing it right now. He's working in you right now. And we want to be part of that. And this is, this is not legalism here. Because, you know, what legalism says, go out. Go out and try to be good. Try to live up to some arbitrary standard, whatever it is you want to say it is. Go live up to the standard and God will be pleased with you. He will accept you. And it's the opposite of this is called antinomianism, which says that God doesn't care how you live. And both of these are false. What the gospel says is God has already done the work. You already have the power in you. And nothing you can do will ever measure up. But, and this is a big but, but if you really believe, if you really believe that God is working in you, you'll make every effort to please him. This whole passage is in the context of, and it's because the power of God that is given to us to live a godly life through knowing Jesus is not some abstract problem. God calls us, his people, to live lives and to do things that we could not possibly do live the lives that God requires of us, that God wants us to live. But 
He also gives us the power to do it. But you know, some of you might been th- be sitting there thinking, and you know, I've been there too. I don't feel like I have the power of God in my life. You know, you, you say it's all nice and good for you to say that I have the power to, to overcome, that God will provide the, a way, but I don't feel like it. I've failed. I've let my family down. I've let my church down. I've let everyone around me down. I've let God down. Is God really working in me? And I don't want us to get sidetracked here, but I, I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, making every effort and God working us does not mean that we're never going to mess up. And in fact, the Bible assumes we're going to fall, assumes we're going to fail. You know, why do you think Jesus taught us to pray? Like in the, the example of how we pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our, this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or our sins as we also forgive those, our debtors, those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, we're going to be tempted, we're going to sin. And God doesn't call us to feel sorry for ourselves, or to try and fall on our sword and say, well, now I must pay the price for this terrible sin that I've committed. You know, don't just sit there and think, I don't know whether or not I'm saved. I've messed up, I've failed, and so I'm going to sit here and I'm going to feel bad about it. I'm going to just let the guilt weigh on me and I'm going to fall on my sword. No! You're not saved by what you do. You live a godly life because God is changing you. Because God has changed you. And so we've got to fall on our knees. We've got to fall on our knees before God and ask God to change our hearts. And we've got to ask that every day. We've got to go out and make every effort, but we don't do it alone. We don't hold back. We don't just give a little bit. We give every effort. We give everything. And often here, we we try to make things really complicated. Or feel there must be some, some sort of big trick. You know, if I just get that thing, it'll be done. But you know, the Bible in general It's quite simple. The problem with the Bible is it's hard. It's hard to come before God admitting that we can't do it alone. It's hard to make every effort, to hold nothing back, to take every opportunity to live in light of the gospel and thus confirm our calling. This is not a call to perfection. This is a call to abandon ourselves and to rely on the power of God to transform us, to transform our hearts, to transform our minds. And it's a process. You notice here that Paul doesn't say, you know, if you achieved, uh, sorry, Peter rather, if you achieved these qualities in all their fullness and perfect them, holding yourself to the highest possible standard, then you're never going to fall. Is that what he says? No. He says if you practice these qualities, if they are increasing. In, the letters, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul, in chapter 3 of the Philippians, letter to the Philippians, Paul puts it this way, and, and I love this, I love this. Philippians is one of my favorite books because, because of the way that Paul portrays like the Christian life 
And it's such an encouraging book. Like, I encourage you to read it all the time because the book of Philippians, just, it's just up, so uplifting. Because Paul says here, not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Already. He's already been made. He already belongs to Jesus. And yet, Paul presses on. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what is lies behind, all of the sins, all of the failures, all of the mess-ups, and you know, Paul messed up big time. Like, Paul was a murderer. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But what was it that Paul has not yet attained? Becoming like Jesus in his death. Becoming like him in his greatest example of love and self-sacrifice. And the Christian life here is portrayed in scripture often like a race. We're meant to be running. And I want you to know here that you know, if Christ has called you, if Christ has called you, if Christ is working in your life, then you're in the race. You're in the race. And the race is not going to end until we finally see him face to face in heaven. And I used to run a fair bit. And there may, there, I don't know how many of you here have ever run competitively. I don't run much anymore. But I remember when I was, was younger, I used, to, I used to run somewhat competitively. And in one race in particular, I remember it stands out to me because after I'd finished running the race, the final push to reach the finish line took so much out of me and those of you who run a lot might know this. Like, like I felt like I wanted to throw up. Like you, you get to the end of the race and I, like I was heaving. And if you had asked me to run another 10, 15 meters, couldn't have done it. My legs were like jelly, right? There was nothing left in me. A and this was probably partly due to the fact that I didn't manage my stamina well enough over the course of the race. So I was just a poor runner. But I often think back to that when I, when I think of this idea of making every effort. That, you know, I got to the finish line and I had nothing left. Nothing left. And, and when we get to the finish line in the race of the Christian life, God gives us the strength. God puts us in the race. But we need to make sure that we leave everything on the track. And this is what Peter means when he says make every effort. Leave nothing behind. So, are you looking for assurance today? And it's at this point, I, I want to stop for a second because there's a really important question we need to ask here. And that is, do you know Jesus? Are you trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Is your hope in him? And the, the reason I ask this is because this letter here, all this hope and assurance and what Peter's talking about, is addressed at people who believe, who've already accepted verses 1 to 4. Because if you don't believe, if God hasn't changed your heart, then there's, there's no assurance. There's only condemnation. This entire conversation, if we remember back to the beginning of the, the, beginning of the sermon, is predicated on the idea that we know the gospel. It's in light of verses 1 to 4. And if we are trusting the gospel that if Jesus is Lord of our lives, this is not some sort of wishy-washy, sincere seeking of truth. This is total and utter devotion to Jesus. 
God who became man died. And think about that for a second. God who became man died on the cross bearing the infinite wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. So do you know Jesus? But for those of us who do call, who do claim the name of Jesus as our hope and say, you know, he's Lord of my life, Lord of our lives, what does making every effort look like? Because it's a bit of a vague term. And, and one of the issues with it is, it, is, it, is this, this whole, your whole life is meant to reflect this. So, so what does it look like? And so I, I'm going to ask us three questions here, which these are not exhaustive, but may help us to evaluate, are we making every effort? So number one. How often do you pray? How often do you fall on your knees before the God of the universe and beg him, beg him for the strength to get through your day, to change your heart, to help you love your family, your wife, to love him more? How often do you do that? How often do you ask God to to change you? show you your weaknesses, your failings, your sin? How often do you pray for this city, for our province, for our country, for your friends, your family, for the church? You know, if we're we're not tapping into the greatest power in the universe, God who spoke everything into existence, we're not asking him, can we really say we're making every effort? Number two, how often do you let other believers dig into your life? When was the last time that you opened up to another believer and confessed your sin? Asked them to pray for you, keep you accountable. When was the last time that someone came to you and said, you're sinning. You've got a problem. And called you on your crap. Because I guarantee you, you have it. We all have it. If you have not arrived, I have not arrived. And so if no one is calling you on it, it means you're not letting them in to be able to call. It's not a problem of no one calling. It's a problem of you not being open enough that anyone is able to. You see, we weren't meant to live, live the Christian life in isolation. We need the church, we need other believers to walk alongside us and to encourage us to chase after Christ. And this is what Paul and Steve and I are here to do. This is our, our job, so to speak, but it's, it's not just our job, it's all of our jobs. And we as elders need you to be discipling us and calling, keeping us to account. And we need to do it to each other and we all need to be getting in each other's lives. Because I guarantee you, every person in this room is struggling with something even if we don't know it yet. Surround yourself with other believers who are going to speak into your life. The final question to maybe ask ourselves, are we making every effort? How often do we spend time in God's word? 
asking here about some sort of cursory reading of the Bible in the morning. You know, we've all done that. You know, we're like, well, I should probably read my Bible, so I'm going to open it up. Okay, done. No. Do you know God? Do you know what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he wants for your life? And we sometimes are scared of reading the Bible because we think, you know, it's really complicated. I'm not an intellectual. You know, these big, scary concepts are not my thing. But, you know, I'm here to tell you that most of the Bible is not actually hard because it's hard to understand. It's hard because it's hard to obey. And it's hard to read because we don't want to. Because we know what we're going to see. I think deep down, we know what we're going to see. In fact, in my experience, you know, people who are more intellectual, and I would include like my, myself in, that, in this problem, is it's, easier, it's almost harder to read God's word because it's easy for us to, to make God's word about ideas instead of letting it change us. It's really easy to kind of look at God's word and, and think and pontificate on these ideas. But what I'm talking about here is spending time in God's word, getting to know God, letting it change your life, and reading it as commands from God. Remember, we're not meant to think about cleaning our room. We're meant to obey. Because when we read God's word, we're going to be convicted. If we really read it this way, we're going to be convicted. And we're going to see that, you know, God wants us to love one another and not to gossip and to go into the whole world and make disciples and to make him a priority in our lives. And we don't do that often. So can we say we are making every effort to know God better? And I say all these questions here not to ask you if you haven't achieved. Like, this is, not, this is not kind of to make you feel bad. This is a question that's asked, does the trajectory of your life, does your time, does your effort, do your hopes, do your fears, does your money reflect that you are making every effort to live in light of the gospel? Because God is still working in us. Are you on your knees before God asking him to change your heart, to transform you? Are you ready to obey when he comes asking? And I, and, and I beg of you here, please, please, please do not sit here and think, you know, that's not me. Well, you're allowed to think that's not me, but, but don't sit here and think that's not me, I'm doomed. I've been not making any every effort. So I might as well just give up. Our passage here, it's a call to action. It's a call to be encouraged. It's a call to put our hope where it matters. Put your hope in God and what he does and then go out and make every effort. And you know, if you haven't been doing it, you could start today. And you know what we know? And this, is, this is the really cool thing. Is if you go do that, God will give you the strength to get through. He will. Because through Jesus, we have already the power in us. We don't need to go get something. We don't need to go get an education. We don't need to go do a bunch of list of tasks. The power is already there. We just need to go out and make every effort. This should be an encouragement. should give us confidence that we can go press ahead. Let's pray. Father God, 
thank you and praise you for your word. have already done everything that needs to be done. But Lord, we just ask now that you would help us to live in light of the gospel, that we would make every effort to confirm the calling that you have put on our lives, to confirm that we are yours. Father God, we confess that, you know, so often we don't live up to your standard. Should we never live up to your perfect standard? But we can be confident, Lord. We thank you that, that you've already done the work and that you don't call us to anything that you're not going to give us the strength to do. Lord, for those of us here who have not been making every effort, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, call us, work in our hearts to drive us closer to you, that we would seek you with everything in us. We would make every effort. We wouldn't hold anything back. Father God, I pray that we would seek your will in our lives. We would seek to love one another, to act like we actually believe the gospel. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us confidence to step out, trusting that you're going to see us through, and that you're working in us. Pray all these things in your name.